When I was growing up at dance parties, a friend of mine would, without fail, wait until just the right moment, just as things were really starting to get going, and then he'd find an object that he could hold in his hands, the quirkier the better. It might be a basketball, or a throw pillow, or a potted plant, or an umbrella, a goldfish bowl. And once he had it in his hands, he'd start to dance with it holding it out at arm's length, passing it behind his back, twirling and bobbing and weaving as he went. It was the perfect blend of earnest and inventive, self-deprecating and joyful. And he had the charisma and the grace to pull it off. Every time, it would kick the party up into a higher gear. It was his signature, recognizable in an instant from clear across the dance floor. You know it was him from a hundred yards away. You know how that is, how you can recognize some people at a distance just from the way they move, the way they walk, or the way they interact in a crowd, or carry themselves in a room. Their signature moves. Which raises the question, what's yours? What's the move or the set of moves, the choreography that defines you, that would give you away from a hundred yards off? If your way of life were boiled down into a dance, a signature move, what would it be? Earnest and inventive? Self-deprecating and joyful? Serious? Generous? Faint-hearted? Bold? Now, there's recently been a lot of talk in the United States about greatness. Are we great? Did we used to be great? Can we be great again? Typically overlooked in all this talk is the question of what greatness is in the first place, what it looks like, how we would know it when we see it, and how we can embody it in our own lives and communities. The question of human greatness is as old as humanity itself. We see it in our most ancient stories, including in the Gospels. In the oldest Gospel, as it happens, the Gospel of Mark, Jesus finds his disciples arguing on the road about who among them is the greatest. And what Jesus does next changes everything. In fact, it's his signature move. I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part two of our six-part series on understanding Jesus. In part one, we saw how, for him, the Messiah is no military conqueror with the shallow strength of domination, but rather a good shepherd with the deep and genuine strength of vulnerability, grace, courage, and neighborly love, a love extended even and especially to enemies. This is Jesus' style. And it's also the core of his mission, the same mission he calls his followers to join. 
At first, Peter and the other disciples, along with the crowds, find this idea of the Messiah so different, so counterintuitive, so foreign to how the world seems to work, at least on the surface, that they reject it. They don't understand. They don't trust. They don't believe. And so Jesus tries again. After returning to his home territory of Galilee, he keeps a low profile, away from the crowds that were by then flocking to him for healing and to hear him teach. He figures that some time and space, some peace and quiet, will help him explain the way of life he has in mind to his skeptical, anxious followers, and that he's about to enter a new and difficult chapter. He'll suffer and be killed. And then on the third day, rise. But the disciples, well, even this second time around, they still don't understand. Even worse, Mark says, they're afraid to ask Jesus any questions. What are they afraid of? Maybe they're like Peter, still hoping the Messiah is a glorious conqueror, and they're afraid to press the point lest they elicit the same reaction Peter got. Or maybe they're afraid of what Jesus means when he says that if they really want to follow him, they too will have to pick up their own crosses. Maybe that's more than they bargained for. Or maybe they sense that he's about to get sideways with the powers that be in Jerusalem, and they've been around long enough to know that things typically don't go too well for prophets in Jerusalem. Not for the prophet, and not for the prophet's followers. Maybe they're afraid of what lurks up ahead in the shadows, what they might lose, what they might be asked to give up. Speaking of prophets, in the background here is an ancient mysterious vision, famously invoked by the prophet Isaiah. A vision of the suffering servant, a cryptic figure who's rejected and despised by everyone, Isaiah says, but through whom God's deliverance is carried out. When Jesus declares that the child of humanity must undergo suffering and rejection, he's drawing on this old idea, the suffering servant. The basics boil down to this. God is going to pull off a great reversal. The stone the builders rejected, that very stone, will become the cornerstone in a new, beautiful building, as the famous image in Psalm 118 puts it. God won't deliver humanity through a mighty warrior or an exalted, popular, wealthy, healthy king, but rather in the opposite way, in the most stunning, surprising way imaginable. God will deliver humanity through a vanquished, rejected, despised nobody, a mere servant, and even worse, a servant overwhelmed with suffering and pain. These disadvantages will themselves serve as sure signs that it's God who is at work, since after all, a dominant general or a powerful monarch may well achieve victory by virtue of their prowess and resources. But for the lowest of the low, a defeated, pathetic, suffering servant to deliver God's people. Well, only divine grace could account for that. This is the ancient sacred poetry, says the prophet Isaiah. The astonishing reversal. 
God is bringing to pass. And so, this is the poetic pattern, says Jesus, through which salvation must and will arrive. The suffering servant. But again, the disciples don't get it. It all sounds like a stretch. They're worried, they're afraid, and not for the first time. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, again and again, the disciples fall into fear. Why are you afraid, Jesus asks them, near the beginning of their work? Have you still no faith? And a little later he says, do not fear, only believe. For Mark, faith is about fortitude, courage, chutzpah, taking bold initiative. The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's fear. But fear doesn't always look like cowering somewhere in a corner. The truth is, sometimes fear takes the form of bluster and boasting, overcompensating for deep-seated anxieties by talking tough and insisting we're superior to our enemies or even superior to our friends. A truly confident person doesn't boast. There's no need for it. Every brag is both a sign of insecurity and an attempt to cover over a hole, a doubt, a worry. And sure enough, what do the disciples do with Jesus' teaching about the coming suffering and resurrection? Do they take it as an occasion for reflection, for sober humility? No, they take it as an occasion for worry. And so they fall back into an argument about who among them is the greatest. What were you arguing about along the way? Jesus asks them. And they fall silent, too embarrassed to answer. They were having a boasting contest, a competition over whose insecurity is the deepest, whose braggadocio is covering the biggest chasm of fear and self-doubt. And so Jesus sits down. In those days, sitting was the classic rabbinical posture of teaching, and calls the disciples to gather around and to listen. So, you want to be great, hmm? You want to be first of all? I understand, and I agree. I'm calling you to greatness, no question about it. But you've mistaken dominance for greatness, supremacy for greatness, being first of all for greatness. And that view of greatness, Jesus says, which is undoubtedly the prevailing view in the world then and now, that view of greatness is actually exactly upside down. You want to be first of all, Jesus says, then set out to be last of all, servant of all. Not the master, but the apprentice. Not the host, but a guest. Not the one looking down, but the one looking up. The one kneeling, washing another person's feet. The servant of all. 
and that means serving not only the ones we'd expect to serve, you know, the honored guests and those at the center of society, but also and especially those at the margins. And then Jesus, as if to underscore the point, reaches out and takes a child into his arms. A child. In those days, the person with perhaps the least social status in the neighborhood. And Jesus puts her at the center of the conversation, exalts her in their presence, these grown men who just moments ago were jockeying to occupy the central position themselves. No, Jesus says, this child will take the central position, a move that functions as exhibit A for what it looks like to serve the underserved, to benefit not only the powerful and prestigious, but also and especially those without power, without worldly prestige. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name, Jesus says, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. To welcome a child to the center of the circle is to welcome God. What's perhaps most surprising in all this, and most revealing when it comes to understanding Jesus, is that he lays out these teachings as explanations of what the journey to the cross and the empty tomb is all about. That journey is about a way of life, the way of life, the way of service, of looking up to all people, no matter how small of serving all people, no matter who they are or who they aren't, of seeking to be last of all, not first. This, Jesus says, is a life of greatness, true greatness. The journey to the cross and resurrection, a willingness to suffer for the sake of nonviolent love and justice, that journey is an icon for this way of life. But servanthood also animates Jesus' mission as a whole. It's his modus operandi. Think of the Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke, the way God comes to dwell with us, a graceful descent into vulnerability and loving service. That's what true greatness looks like. One of the oldest songs in the Christian treasury, memorialized in the book of Philippians, puts it like this. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. This is nothing less than Jesus' signature move. And he calls us, any who would follow him, to make it our signature move as well. Jesus is about ideas, but even more, he's about ideas in action a kind of choreography, a movement, a way of life. And so understanding him can't only be about parroting his teachings or spouting particular doctrines about him. At the end of the day, understanding Jesus has to happen through action, through intentional, creative, courageous acts that counter the conventional view of greatness, and so help turn an upside-down world right-side up. In our personal lives and professional lives, we can identify ways to act not with a conqueror's spirit, but with a servant's spirit. 
Our lives, too, are largely constructed through class associations, networking with the relatively powerful, connected, and well-to-do in our communities, and sidestepping the relatively powerless and isolated. How can we imagine and build new networks of relationships? How can we reach out in new directions to those typically overlooked? After all, Jesus spent most of his time in his ministry consorting with supposed outsiders, with sinners and the supposedly unclean, with the sick, with the disabled, and with children, much to his disciples' chagrin. Wouldn't following Jesus mean, well, going where he actually goes and building relationships like the ones he actually builds? The good news is that God calls us to live lives of true greatness, not the counterfeit greatness of dominance and status, but the genuine greatness of love and kindness. God is dismantling the logic of self-centered, grasping domination and revealing the deeper physics of gracious, courageous, neighborly love. The journey to the cross and the empty tomb helps illuminate this deeper reality. Want to save your life? Turn outward toward your neighbors. Want to be truly great? Seek not to be first of all, but last of all and servant of all, reaching out especially to the lost and the left behind, the downtrodden and the disinherited. Let that be your signature, earnest and inventive, self-deprecating, and joyful. That's where Jesus will be, after all, at the margins, and the Holy Spirit, too, lifting up and transforming the world from the outside in. That's the movement, the choreography of true greatness. You can recognize it from a mile away. Understanding Jesus, truly understanding him, means building our lives around that distinctive dance, that pattern of uplift, and transformation, again and again, kicking the party up into a higher gear. Strange New World is a SALT Project production, written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find us. And drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.